Welcome to The Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Yvonne Winget Sanchez. I cover national politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen. I'm also a national political reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking about communication between you and lawmakers in the age of social media. How much leniency do politicians really have to block people on social media? Is Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram the new town hall forum? You'll hear from one Valley resident who is blocked by his representative on Twitter, and then we'll speak with a First Amendment lawyer on the legality of this issue, so you know your rights. One of the main ways people tend to communicate with elected officials these days is through social media. Twitter, Facebook, sometimes even LinkedIn. These forums have become pretty essential to communicating and getting attention to complaints, to ideas, to viewpoints. If you want to encourage a lawmaker to vote one way or another on a specific issue, it's a really handy tool to do so. Right. So what happens when an elected official prevents you from communicating with them? They block you on Twitter, for example. We hear reports of this happening all the time. If you'll recall, President Donald Trump has blocked voters. Republican Representative Paul Gosar, who represents a northwest swath of the state, has blocked and then unblocked some of his constituents. But here's the thing. A reasonable person might likely assume a lawmaker would mostly block people who are spewing hate or some other inappropriate behavior. But that wasn't the case for Trevor Nelson, a Valley father and former public school teacher who was blocked in the past year by Republican State Senator Michelle Ugenti Rita. Nelson subscribes to the Arizona Republic, and he's a regular gaggle listener. Here's our interview with him. So, Trevor, tell us a little bit about you. What do you do? Where are you from? Yeah, so um, I guess my origin story if you want that. I was born in Alaska. I moved to Arizona after years of vacationing here with my snowbird grandparents. Um, Growing up in Alaska, I was a a staunch Republican, very involved in political process um, because my grandparents were. Um, My grandma is still, she's in her 90s and she's still um, the election person. She gathers everybody together to do the elections and handles the polling place for her her county, her her borough. Um, I've worked on political campaigns. I, I did an internship in Washington, D.C., so I love politics. I was a teacher for eight years here in Arizona, um, and now I work in marketing. So you obviously have had an interest in politics for many years. How often do you communicate with elected officials, and what's it usually about? Yeah, so I um, I tend to communicate with elected officials uh, daily. Um, it's I think my wife thinks I am um, I'm addicted to Twitter maybe I maybe I am so for me the Twitter has become the new kind of public space it's the town square if you will of communication with your representatives I'm not on Facebook so I don't use that as, a, as an outlet but Twitter offers this opportunity to reach out to them or their whoever in their office handles their Twitter account um, and to communicate grievances or get you know make suggestions um, communicate your, your own beliefs and what you think should happen and it's especially critical, I think, when we live in a country now where we're one tweet away from the stock market crashing or, um, you know, going to war, those sorts of things. So it's, an, it's another way to get involved. Um, and, but there's a dark side to it, too, where you can surround yourself by followers and you can follow people um, that you end up in kind of a 
cacophony safe space, if you will, where you don't hear from, um, from other views. And so that's why I like to interject. So we're hearing from you. You reached out to us mm-hmm. um, because you were blocked by uh, State Senator Michelle Eugenti Brita. Um, how did you know that you were blocked? Yeah. So, um, you know, this the blocking on Twitter happened sometime last fall. And I don't remember when. And um, if I'm honest with myself, it was probably because of a side comment I made about something because um, she'd posted something that was an politically driven. And I was like, don't you have better things to do? But I don't really know the origin because I haven't gone back through my Twitter timeline. Um, but nothing, I don't cuss. I don't like use poor language and I don't call them names or anything. Um, usually it's about, if I'm being critical, it's of their policies and their positions, not them as a person. Uh, in the spring this time during the session, because I was getting really frustrated with the lack of movement and the fact that um, it appeared at least that the governor's office was working the budget with just very one side and wasn't including both sides, um, which to me is a problem because we live in a representative democracy. Um, you know, the state's very purple. He he did include some provisions that come from, you know, kind of the uh, the minority party, but I felt he should have done more. And so I was seeking to reach out and I couldn't because I was blocked. Um, now there's other avenues, of course, to reach out, but Twitter's the most quick and efficient way. Um, and I think what really spurred this most recent one is my wife was actually blocked for um, for tagging her or putting Eugenia Rita in a tag, trying to inform her about early childhood education spending. And there's this, it's a long story, but there's a great research study in the education world about early childhood education. And there's been some follow-ups over time. And this was kind of the 50th anniversary of it. And they, they've shown that there's a 12, 12% to 14%, depending on how you read the data, um, return on investment in early childhood education. And my wife was trying to inform our representative of that. Um, we live in her district, so we'd think she'd want to hear from us. And immediately my wife got blocked. And there's no connection. We, we don't interact on Twitter, so there's no way for Michelle Eugenti Rita to know that it was my wife that was blocked. But it's that sort of um, that sort of activity that I think is poor form for a representative to not look at it like, oh, this is great information, and instead of continuing the conversation to just block someone. The, so we want to try and be clear on your interactions with Michelle Eugenti. You mentioned that there was a, sort of a, a sarcastic comment or some sort of cheeky comment that you made. When was that? And did she have a response to your knowledge at that time? Did she block you? Did she... At that time, I don't remember. I think, I don't know if she blocked me right away. I don't really keep track. It's, and you don't really know. There's no way to know until you try to actually at somebody on Twitter. And then you realize that it won't, A, it won't autofill in your search. And then the second part is you, you try to search for them and they don't show up in your search. You, you said you did not use profane language or anything like that? No, not to my knowledge. I don't, that is not something I do on Twitter. No obscene gifts or no. other kinds of things. No. It was essentially a sarcastic comment. Yeah. Is that about right? I think, yeah, I've, from, again, it was last fall. So from what I remember and what I, my typical style on social media is, is not, does not involve vulgarity. And as far as the the comment you were trying to make this most recent time when you discovered mm-hmm. that you were blocked, what was the, the message as best you recall? Um, I don't remember the substance of what I was trying to communicate when I realized I couldn't communicate. Um, there was several things going on. Um, and, and she's, I don't know if she remembers me, but we did, my wife and I did visit her several times during the Red Fred protest. Um, we were both ex-teachers. And so 
we have a definite opinion about public public education. Um, and so we went down to the Capitol and held meetings with her. We attended the march, that sort of stuff. Uh, we're very active in in that. What was her response when you met with her then? Um, so that was a real interesting meeting. Um, it took her, uh, we had 30 minutes with her and it took probably 15, 20 minutes for her to understand that we lived in her district and we weren't just like some crazy hacks or, you know, political operatives trying to meet with her and get a meeting. Um, and then cause the tenor of the meeting changed after she finally was like, oh, you live in my district. Okay. Um, but she kind of didn't take us very seriously. Um, cause we're not, I don't know. And I don't understand, um, in our district, LD23, it's a little different. The Republicans don't hold town halls. They don't attend debates. They don't communicate well with their constituency unless there's some like secret like email or newsletter that goes out that we don't know about because we're not, we're, my, I'm not registered Republican anymore. I'm a, uh, Arizona has this great thing where you can register as a non-party affiliated person. So, And it sounds as though your friends and other associates involved in the Red for Ed movement or who are members of your community have also discovered that they've been blocked by their elected officials. Tell us about that. Yeah, so it's it it, it there's a slight joke to it where we kind of joke back and forth, like, oh, I'm blocked too. Um, and that started during the election. Uh, Frank Riggs was notorious for blocking people who had an, uh, you know, kind of an, an, a differing opinion with him, um, which is odd because I actually had a conversation with him that ended up with him being in the newspaper for something very poor. And I never got blocked. And I was kind of the impetus for that which I find odd, but many of the other people that I associate with on Twitter, my Twitter friends, um, quote unquote, um, have been blocked by lots of representatives, not just their own, but others too. And for those of you who may not remember, Frank Riggs is uh, a Republican who unsuccessfully ran for the Republican nomination for secretary of uh, schools uh, back in 2018. So Trevor, tell us a little bit about why you reached out to us. Well, yeah, the, I think, um, first off, I'm a big fan of the podcast, but also, um, for me, this, this is a deeper issue with the current politics in, um, and since Twitter and social media has become this new public square, the concept of blocking somebody, it runs counter to everything that is in democracy. Um, if you go back to the, you know, 1700s and, you know, the colonies are fighting the king, they're a lot of the grievances in the Declaration of Independence, for example, are about their voice not being heard by the king, um, their representation not being taken seriously. And so this, the, 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 the function of blocking somebody closes off the communication. Um, it ends the conversation, which I'm sure for the person who does the blocking feels great because then you can ignore that alternate voice. Um, but unfortunately, that is not how our democracy works. Um, this is a democracy built on free speech. And I think ultimately there's a, there's a, a tenor to this, which is lost in the communication, which is the First Amendment isn't just about free speech. It's also about, um, you know, establishing a communication pattern of an ability to um, redress, you know, and seek redress for your grievances with your elected officials. So the fact that, as an example, Frank Riggs is a public citizen now. He can do what he wants. Um, he still interacts with me on Twitter. I interact with him. Um, because he's not an elected official, once you make that transition, you now have a responsibility to listen to especially your own constituents who you would hope you'd want to court as a voter. Um, and so there's a political aspect where you'd want to probably in encourage these people to participate, even if they're a different voice, so in, in the hopes that you get their vote. 
But also, it's the closing off the communication that's just, it runs counter to 243 years of democracy, in my opinion. So that's why I'm bringing this up. And we're going to be talking about that point later on in the episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Trevor. Thanks for subscribing to AZ Central. And thank you most of all for listening to The Gaggle. Of course. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about Trevor's story and the stories of other constituents who have been blocked by their elected officials is Greg Leslie. He is the executive director of the First Amendment Clinic at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. He is also a professor of practice at the school. And Greg, you are very familiar with the um, ins and outs of the First Amendment, and uh, you've worked with reporters for years to try to help them gain access to their elected officials and to records. You are no strange face, I guess, to the newsroom. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So... Greg, we've just talked to Trevor uh, about his involvement, his dealings with Michelle Ugenti Rita, and he tried to interact with her on social media via Twitter and discovered that she has blocked him and was he was upset because he really feels, number one, there are such limited opportunities to have interactions with politicians in this day anyway. And then to be shut out like that, uh, it really kind of limits his public involvement. This is somebody who is a former school teacher who is um, pretty engaged in the public debate and, and cares a lot about policy. How common is this? And is it an Arizona thing or is this caught on nationally? No, it's a, it's a national thing, but that doesn't mean there are any clear answers yet. Um, there have been some cases decided by the Fourth Circuit, which covers Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, the Carolinas. And that's really the only clear statement we have so far. The others come from federal district courts, particularly the case involving Donald Trump blocking people on Twitter. The case against Donald Trump was brought by a public interest group at Columbia University that represented a number of people blocked by President Trump from participating in his Twitter discussions. Um, the, the case ended up not being about his posts themselves, but the forum created by the discussions in reaction to his post. And that one might be the most instructive, but it doesn't really carry a lot of precedent here. So this is happening everywhere. Um, once Twitter and Facebook make that option available, people are, of course, going to use it. You know, they justify it as, I don't want trolls spoiling this nice conversation among my uh, constituents. And so there's some sympathy for that. And there's some sympathy for the fact that elected officials also have First Amendment rights. Most of them get into politics because they want to say something about what they don't like about the official use of power. You mentioned uh, the president's case. Can you tell us what the stand, what the current posture of that case is? It was just uh, about two months ago argued before the D.C. Circuit. So there hasn't been a decision yet. The uh, lower court said, yes, it, it is a violation of the First Amendment rights of listeners to block them, uh, their followers on Twitter. So the, the precedent going into the circuit is good. And we just don't know what the circuit decision is going to be yet. So for people who might be less familiar with uh, the First Amendment, can you give us a quick primer on what that is and what it's supposed to guarantee? Yeah, I mean, generally, the First Amendment is there not just to protect your speech, but to really protect the ability of people to participate in a democracy. 
So it's not just about what you say and what other people can say. The idea is people should be able to say whatever they want because that's the only way you eventually get to the truth in a democracy. Simply giving the government power to determine what is said in public means that that powerful figure gets to control the entire conversation and, in effect, gets to control what the people know. So you can't really have a democracy under that scenario. And how does Twitter and Facebook and kind of this era of social media that we are all living in complicate these arguments on both sides of whether this should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed? Well, and it's funny because in most areas of the First Amendment, we have applied traditional First Amendment law to the new medium. For a long time, especially in the 90s, there was this, this thought that there was what everybody was calling a paradigm shift, that you had to rethink how you thought about the law. But really, we've done pretty good so far with just applying old standards to new medium, new mediums. So what that means here is that uh, the, the, the analysis usually comes down to what kind of forum are we talking about? Is this a public forum? And if so, is it a general public forum or a limited public forum? And they have different rules to apply to each. But there, there are factors that you look at to determine whether it's a forum. And so in the Fourth Circuit case, that was a Facebook case. And it wasn't about somebody's Facebook account. It was about a page that you set up in Facebook, which is important to the distinction here. Um, if you set up a page, you have to tell Facebook what kind of page you're setting up. And that person set up a government official's page. So it was going to be a forum set up to, deter to discuss that particular politician's agenda and anything you wanted to say to that politician. So that became a fairly easy case. They're saying, look, this was set up by a government actor. It was set up to encourage uh, input into the government process and to learn the output from the politician about what was going on in the government. In this case, it was a county board of supervisors. And so everything about it said, okay, this is a government forum, even though, and this was a kind of a point you have to get over first, Facebook itself is not a public forum. And for a while, there was a lot of talk about how we were going to approach this as to whether social media itself is a public forum, whether Facebook is a public forum, whether Twitter is a public forum. And that just wouldn't be workable because they're not. They're privately owned. They're just the medium for communication. And it's, as a private company, they get to restrict whatever they want. So Facebook is not a public forum, but when Facebook lets you create a page and you designate it as a political figures page, inviting comment, the court ruled you've created a public forum. Greg, uh, in the Trump era, we see this issue is probably not finally resolved and, and we'll probably have more issues like it uh, bringing forward in the next few years. Has the Supreme Court, uh, any of the justices, really shown their hand, given us any kind of clue as to where they might be viewing this issue and, and as it may make its way to them? There was a Supreme Court case about social media generally that really is sort of instructive because they said the key thing, that social media is the new town square, that so much happens there that it has to be protected. It, there has to be uh, a right of free speech there. That case really involved 
a prisoner who was released from jail. I believe it was on, well, I shouldn't speculate on criminal charges, but uh, it, was a, it was a case involving children, an offense against children. And so after he was released, part of his condition for release was that he could not get on social media. And the court said that that was just too restrictive because, yes, that'll protect children from being in contact with this guy, but it's too limiting on his First Amendment rights generally. So they acknowledge that this is a new era. The, you know, social media is something meaningful like a town square. It's not just a way to contact people. It's, you know, it, it's something that has certain rights attached to it. So we've seen that from the Supreme Court. So that's a pretty good indication that they'll see the important issues here, but that doesn't mean they'll resolve them necessarily the way they want. Because, for instance, even in the Trump case, there was a difference the court saw between what Trump tweeted, which they determined was government speech, so it wasn't subject to a forum analysis, and the mechanism for allowing people to reply to it. So they almost had to divide it in half and say the speech itself is one thing, but then the right of reply, the forum created when people are allowed to reply, is a different thing that is a public forum. And, you know, it's hard to know how that's going to play out if, for instance, the politician just simply says, I'm going to make a page but not allow public comment, or state right up front, I'm only going to allow favorable content or content that advances a certain position. If they're clear about the nature of the forum, it might be more difficult for courts to figure out what to do with that. So what can people like Trevor do if they are blocked by their elected representatives? Are there really good remedies outside of court? Well, I think the best one is the use of a public forum to state your claim. You know, let other people know that you've been blocked. And that immediately, in a forum like Twitter or Facebook, suggests that there's something going on that needs to be addressed. And that's how most of these cases get attention. You bring them to the public's attention, and there will be enough people who will say this shouldn't be happening. And then there will be a few people saying, this is proof that this person is corrupt and hiding something. And, you know, in any case, it starts a discussion, and that's probably the best way to get something done about it. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. And when we have a decision on the D.C. Circuit Court case, we will follow up with you and our listeners to let them know what ended up happening there and perhaps if it applies to them. Okay, thanks. So let's break some of this down in our afterthought section. So there might be some people out there who would think, okay, what's the big deal? So you can't communicate with your elected official. You can always show up at a town hall. You can show up at their office, maybe make your voice heard there. But that isn't always the case. Right. So town halls have really sort of disappeared. They've become almost unheard of in just the past two years. They went from pretty raucous affairs where people like Martha McSally got an earful to just not happening. And the alternative as you know, sort of a substitute is some of the teletown halls that you listened to one just last week for her. Yeah. So McSally had a teletown hall with Senator Lindsey Graham uh, recently. And uh, this is a form of uh, communicating with constituents by phone. So oftentimes how they will operate is uh, your phone will ring and 
it will say, Senator Martha McSally is calling. You pick up the phone and it will say in a pre-recorded voice that there is a teletown hall that is occurring. This is a chance for you to hear directly from your senator. Would you like to stay on the line? And if you have a question to ask, it will guide you through a set of prompts. Um, and if you have a question, you can press one, for example, and you will be asked to record what your question is. Oftentimes, those questions are um, filtered through and sometimes questions that uh, make perhaps your candidate look uh, good or in a positive light will be allowed into the queue, while those that might be more critical of your candidate or your public official are screened and you would never get to uh, hear the answer or even ask the question. And I should add, it's not just Senator McSally who does this. It's all of them. This is really sort of a national phenomenon as well. And so it's in that context that we see this sort of importance, the outsized importance of things like Twitter and Facebook as opportunities for engagement. Really, it's almost all there is in a meaningful sense for a lot of folks. What was striking to me about Trevor's case is he says he never was abusive or uh, doing anything that would be classified as sort of ugly speech, the kind of confrontational uh, approach to a lawmaker that would justify shutting him out of the public square. That's where he is. And really, he has very few alternatives. If someone feels like they've been blocked and, and wants to engage, what can they do? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, call the official office of the person that you're trying to reach, maybe try the broader um, main line. You can always reach out to the Arizona Republic and ask to speak to the reporter who covers that specific governing board or um, city hall or uh, state legislative district. And we can chase down answers for you. If you feel like uh, you've been unfairly blocked, please reach out to us and we will try to track down why you were blocked. And I don't know, maybe you'll just end up like Trevor. You'll be an episode of The Gaggle. Well, Gaggle listeners, that's it for today. Thanks so much to our guests, Trevor and Greg, for coming on. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, you can find me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. And you can reach out to me on Twitter at Yvonne Winget. And for the record, I don't block. I mute. <laughs> I can record it again. No, that was just pouring acid all over the desk. Thanks for listening, Gaggle Loyalists. Today's episode was edited and produced by Taylor Seeley with help from Katie O'Connell and Caleb White. Thanks so much. We will see you next week. <laughs>